0: If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to reopen it, if you're not already there, to Romans chapter 5. And this morning we're going to be talking about hope, but before we actually get into the text of Scripture, which is the important part, I want to give a qualifier, or perhaps just make a, a qualification that will help you, I think, in our study this morning of this great theme of hope. The qualifier is one that you already know if you've been a Christian very long Uh, This is something you already know if you've read the Bible very much, but some of us are newer at this Christianity thing than others, so let me give you a little bit of a a boost just in case. When we talk about hope as Christians, we mean something very different from the hope we talk about in day-to-day living as Americans, as 21st century men and women and children. Hope in the Bible is very different from the kind of hope we talk about, and we'll see that in this text, and we'll see it throughout Scripture, but just in case you're not aware of that, I don't want you to misunderstand from the very beginning. When we talk about hope and day-to-day living, we say things like, I hope you have a nice vacation. It's well-wishing. It's nice to say. I'm thankful that we, we say such nice things. Or we say, I hope you have a good day. I hope you do well on your test or something like that. And we speak in those terms. Or we speak in not just in well-wishing terms, we speak in in almost wishful terms. We say things like, I hope I win the lottery. When in fact the possibility or the probability of you winning the lottery is, is... Ludicrous! It's insane, but it's just sort of wishful thinking. It's flippant, and, 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 and I hope I live to be 150. I hope I never die. I hope I never get sick. This is just wishful thinking. It's fanciful thinking. It's not grounded in, in anything that's factual. And then we open our Bibles, and hope is used in a far different way. Hope is used to reference certainty. Hope is used to reference that which is sure, that which is absolute. I think I like the word sure the best as a synonym because it's not based upon wishful thinking. It's not based upon fantasy. It's not based upon nothing. It's based upon something that is objective something that is concrete, something that has happened. For example, today we're going to be talking about the hope that is ours as believers in Christ. And that hope that is ours as believers in Christ is based upon, and it's always based upon something real, something historic that actually happened, something that is objective, and that is the death of Christ the work of Christ through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, because of what he has done, we can have hope. We can have certainty about what is going to happen to us and what has happened to us. So I hope that little bit of a a cliff note, if you will, to kind of get you started, helps you to have your mind ready for us to talk about hope, Christian hope. And you don't need to take my word for it. We'll even see it in this text as we look at the big picture and as we look at scriptures and other places. We're talking about certainties that are ours in Christ. Certainties that are amazing for us in Christ. Well, with that said, I feel the need to pray once again, so let's do that. Father, once again, we pray. Not out of convenience. Not because it seems to be what should be done in a worship service like this. But quite frankly, out of desperation, as a preacher, I want to pray knowing that I can talk and talk and talk and it won't do any good apart from your Holy Spirit working. And so we ask your Holy Spirit to work. We ask your Holy Spirit to work in opening our eyes to understand your word, the word that he himself has brought about. We ask your Holy Spirit to to work in hearts, hearts that are hard, hearts that are cold, as well as hearts that are desperate in need of comfort and encouragement and, yes, indeed, even hope. Lord, do great things even during this time that we have together. We plead with you that this would be more than a religious exercise for us, that we would love Christ, that we would love Christ more, that we would see the true and genuine hope that is ours secured by him ultimately for His glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at Romans 5, 1 to 11 this morning. We won't finish. We'll look at the first couple of verses as all. But as we look at Romans 5, 1 to 11, I would like to be able to draw your attention to... Multi-dimensional hope, I'd like to refer to it as. Multi-dimensional hope given to all who've trusted in Christ. And as we do that, let's look at seven different dimensions, seven different angles, seven, seven different facets of this great hope that is ours if we've trusted in Christ and if we've therefore been justified as a result of His work. Seven different dimensions of hope that are graciously given to believers. We won't see the word hope in each of the verses, but when you look at the whole of these 11 verses, hope is the theme that that permeates all of them. I'm not the first to have recognized that. Many other believers who have gone before have acknowledged this is a section of Scripture that is about hope. It's about the certainty that is ours as believers in Christ. This becomes rather profound, as we will see, but I'll preview now in light of the fact that the Bible tells us in another New Testament book that apart from Christ, we're without hope. We have no certainty when it comes to our lives before God. We have no certainty when it comes to eternity, and yet this text is going to tell us that we have all the certainty in the world, so much certainty that we have to look at it from different facets from different dimensions, from different angles, so that we're more and more confident of what we have in Christ. Dimension number one of this hope that is ours is justified believers. Number one, the hope of peace with God. The hope of peace with God, and we see this in verse 1. Look there with me in your text where it says in verse 1, Therefore having been justified by faith, that's what we've learned about in Romans 1, 2, especially 3 and especially 4, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we can pause for a moment, I don't know what to say other than to say things like, This is magnificent. This is splendid. We have peace with God. It's magnificent because unlike any other feud, unlike any other conflict, unlike any war you will ever experience, read about, watch on television, unlike any other conflict ever known to mankind, has been this conflict that we have been engaged in, that we have been uh, participants in with God. There has been this long war between God and you, between me and God, between you and God. That conflict is so intense that we've learned about it from Romans 1 and 2 and 3, as well as other texts in Scripture. There's been this long war, this long battle, and it's been unlike any other battle when it comes to severity, when it comes to the consequences involved. And so for for this text to say, we have peace with God, should just be jumping off the page to us. Jumping off the page at us. It should cause us to say, this is astounding. We have peace with God in light of what has happened, in light of my heart, in light of who God is and what His expectations are and how I've broken and violated His requirements. And now to say we have peace with God is striking. Let me remind you of what brings us to this point. Let me remind you of the war you have been engaged in with God. We learned about it first back in Romans 118, which is a very important passage in Romans. In Romans 118, it's really, in a sense, the first verse of Romans, because Romans 1 one to seventeen is introductory. Really, when you're getting at the heart of the matter, what is this letter about? Well, it starts with this this bad news about war, quite frankly. In verse 18, it says in chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed. I didn't preach on this passage last Sunday in London. I preached on a different passage, but I actually referenced this. And and I wanted to say, wrath. But I thought they would think I was mocking them. And so instead I sounded like an ugly American and said, wrath. (laughs) Wrath. Wrath sounds better, but no matter how you say it or pronounce it in whatever language, it's not good and it's not funny. The wrath of God, the the, the judgment of God is revealed from heaven. So in case we need to see that it's from God, he repeats himself in, in essence and says, it's from heaven and it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that launches this letter, it launches this book so as to say everyone is guilty and everyone is currently under the wrath of God. There is conflict between us and God and God has put us therefore under His wrath because we have rebelled against Him as God. Then if you look at chapter 2, verse 5, we see this business of wrath again and something, therefore, of this war that we are experiencing with God. And it says in verse 5 of chapter 2, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So it goes from bad to worse in the sense that there is a current wrath that we are under because of our rebellion against God. There is this conflict that brings current wrath. And then chapter 2, not only is there current wrath coming from God upon our heads, there is also a future coming wrath. We are storing up wrath because there is a future coming day of wrath. And so there's this huge conflict going on between us and God. If we were to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we would learn that by nature we are children of wrath, children of the just judgment that would come from God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, we would learn that we're actual, actually hostile toward God. All this wartime kind of terminology. And once again, this is a hostility like no other hostility. There's no question in this particular war, as in every other war, about who exactly is telling all of the truth here. There's always a certain amount of gray. There's always a certain question about ethics and, and, and what exactly who started what and what exactly is the problem. In some wars more than others, it becomes rather difficult to try to figure it out. Not in this case. God is holy and righteous and we've rebelled against Him. He and He alone is God and we've rebelled against Him. Not only that, there's no question in this particular case who the superpower is. We don't have two superpowers. We have one superpower, God, who is righteous and just and has all of the power at His own fingertips and so it's not going to end well for us. This is the context that we should be seeing all of this in. And then we read in Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. This is outrageous. In a good sense, we, we have peace with God. Uh, you'd say, how can this be? How can it be where, where God has His laser sights on your forehead? Your forehead is painted, if you will, to borrow more modern wartime technological verbiage. You're hot. You're painted. And and God is just waiting. Let's put it this way. Jesus, the Son, is just waiting for God the Father to give the go-ahead and so He can execute His divine wrath upon you. You've already been marked. You're the target. Maybe if we could just build that up a little bit more in light of Scripture. Acts chapter 17 would have us to know that one of the reasons God had Jesus rise again from the dead, one of the reasons, is to put the whole world on notice that Jesus himself is going to be the one who gets tapped by the Father to go and execute wrath upon all rebels who have been marked with God's scope, if you will. Wow! How can this be? How could this possibly be? We deserve wrath. We're under wrath. We're children of wrath. How in the world could this be that we have peace with God? And verse 5 tells us, and it's so wonderful, where it says, Therefore, having been justified, oh, we have righteousness God requires righteousness. How can we have peace with God? We can have peace with God if we have the righteousness that we need. And it says we do have the righteousness that we need because it says having been justified, having been declared righteous. But notice how it happens. Further answering that question, how could this be? How could we have peace with God? It says justified by faith. And then keep reading. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. There's the answer. I have peace with God even though I deserve the wrath of God because I have justification. I've been declared righteous. And how have I been declared righteous? Well, I've been declared righteous by faith. And and, and, and faith in what? Faith in self? Faith in religion? Faith in performance? No. It goes on to tell us through our Lord Jesus Christ because He lived and obeyed the Ten Commandments, if you will, for me which is what God requires. Ultimately, in one commandment, loving Him perfectly, honoring Him as God, which I didn't do, but Jesus did for me. Then Jesus going to the cross, bearing the righteous wrath of God on my behalf. Then Jesus rising again from the dead, bringing new life to all who would believe in Him. This is fantastic. If you've believed in Christ, Trusted in Him and not in yourself for righteousness, the Bible would have you to know, Romans 3 especially and Romans 4, that you have been declared righteous with perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And I hope your little Baptist heart is saying, Amen, if you have. Yes, I need righteousness. I have, that's me. I have righteousness because I believed in Him based upon His work, not some sort of fiction. I'm here to tell you, based upon the authority of God's word, if you have such righteousness, if you've been declared righteous through faith in Christ, you have the hope of peace with God. You have the hope of peace with God. Because God is loving and kind and not only righteous and just, He set His sights on his son and executed divine wrath on his son so you could have peace it's absolutely fantastic you might want to make a note in Romans 5.1 because Romans 5.1 is kind of shorthand it's assuming we remember everything we've read so far and I have a horrible memory You might want to make a note in Romans 5.1 back to the historic reality of what through our Lord Jesus Christ means. And that's a note that takes us back to chapter 3, verse 24. And if you would look there, we have not the shorthand, but we have the details. He's expecting us to remember something through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what was it that our Lord Jesus Christ did for us? Well, in chapter 3, verse 24, it tells us, and we'll go back and touch this, this home base, if you will, again and again and again over the time we study Romans, being justified as a gift, so it's not something we earn, by His grace through, how could this be? Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Then verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, as a satisfaction as an atonement in His blood through faith. That is giving us more detail as to how we can have peace with God. We've been justified. We've been justified by faith and it's been faith in that propitiatory work, in that redeeming work. And now we have peace. Peace. Please remember what we should be seeing from this Romans five passage. What we should be be seeing from Romans—that central to the whole thing—is who. It's Christ. We have peace with God. What a blessing! What what a hope! let's remember it's through our Lord Jesus Christ and His work on our behalf that we have peace with God. It is, in fact, all about Him. We have peace because of what He has done. And so worthy is the Lamb to be praised because He gave us this kind of hope. If perhaps you're not impressed... I know why. It's because you haven't really come to grips with what God has said in Romans 1, 2, and 3, and that is you are currently under His divine wrath. And as you are under His divine wrath, you are heaping up even more future wrath so that on the day of wrath, you are going to pay for your sins and there will be hell to pay. You see, to the degree that we get that, we're impressed with Christ. The fact that we have peace. And some of you don't get that at all, so you're not impressed with Christ. But I think the rest of us, it's, it's, it's all somewhat relative. I'm impressed to the point where I'll stand up here and perspire about it. But I know that I haven't arrived And so I want to continue contemplating the sinfulness of sin and the greatness of Christ so that when I think about what He did on the cross for me, I'm more and more impressed. I'm more impressed than I used to be. I'm more impressed than ever in my whole life. But I take it I'll just be more and more impressed. So if I can issue a challenge, a pastoral challenge to you, to the degree you're not impressed, you're overestimating yourself and your own righteousness. And or you're underestimating the righteousness of God and the wrath that is deserved. That's why we do have statements in Scripture. I alluded to one, I'm not sure if I referenced it earlier, in Ephesians chapter 2 where we're told as Christians, if we are Christians, remember you were a child of wrath. See, this is good for us to remember. It's good for us to meditate upon because then when we see Jesus, the hero, we see that He is indeed the hero. It's all about Him. We have peace with God. How? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is... Everything to us. Let's move on to a second dimension of hope. We'll speed things up a bit on these others. Second dimension of hope for the justified, and that is the hope of standing in grace, let's call it. The hope of standing in grace. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of awkward because I don't speak in those terms. But I think when we read verse 2, it won't sound so awkward. In fact, we might want to start speaking in those terms. We have the hope of standing in grace if we're justified through faith. Look at verse 2 where it says, Through whom, still talking about Jesus, also, see there's even more hope given here, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. General idea first And then let's look at the details to appreciate just how great Christ is. General idea, because of God's amazing grace, because of Christ's amazing work, if you believe in Christ and Christ alone, what is true is you can be sure that God will accept you and that you're in a right relationship with God. The point is you can have Security. You can have confidence. You can be sure that this is going to last. I think that's the general idea, but let's look at the details and see why it really should pack a punch here. This standing is sure. It is not something that might be true if we work hard enough. Look and see that in verse 2. Through whom also, notice this this surety, this, this absoluteness through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Two different places, at least in the text, that bring about this sureness, this, this confidence. And you can underline both places and see this is, these, are, these are speaking in absolute terms. We have obtained and we stand firmness Stability, when we're talking about this relationship with God, this peace with God, this hope we have before God as justified people, we have obtained this and we stand in this. It's a great, vivid image. And we haven't even gotten into really the details yet and it's a great image. This steadfastness that we have in Christ. This standing also, if you look at the verse again, is all Christ's doing. Make sure you see that in verse 2 where it says, Through whom, we know that's talking about Christ, also we have obtained our introduction. How have we obtained our introduction to God? Well, we've obtained it through Christ. Who earned this for us? What makes it uh, so hopeful? Christ makes it so hopeful. We, we, it has to do with Him and His historic, objective work. And maybe to appreciate this even more, I'll read a citation from Leon Morris who has become more and more my friend over these months of studying Romans. Let's do an observation he makes that perhaps we we would miss. Let's listen in and listen to a New Testament scholar who loves Christ to help us to understand the standing in grace and, and just how significant it is. He says, most translations speak of our having access. That's the ESV, which is a good translation. That's the NIV. That's the KJV. I read all of those. Some of you have those. They're good Bibles, good renderings. But listen to what he says that's helpful, and you might want to make a marginal note if that's the Bible you have with you today. Most translations speak of our having access, but the noun seems rather to mean introduction. I'm preaching from the New American Standard Bible today, and it says introduction. say, why would that be significant? Why would it be significant to say, and perhaps we're thinking this is splitting hairs, you know, it would be better to translate this introduction and not access. He goes on to quote Sandy and Headlam, classic New Testament scholars, by saying, The idea is that of introduction to the presence chamber of the monarch. The rendering access is inadequate since it leaves out of sight the fact that we do not come in our own strength, but need an introducer, Christ. The stress is on Christ's activity, not ours. With that word picture in mind, that we are introduced to the monarch here, let's reread the verse. Through whom also, speaking of Christ, we have obtained our introduction not merely access where we might think it's something that that we ourselves can do no the emphasis will be better placed on our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand one translation even puts it even though it's not very literal it captures the idea it puts it this way christ has brought us into this place you see the picture How is it that we could be before the king in the king's presence? Well, you don't just walk in and say, Hi, I'm here. Would you like to meet me? What have you done for me lately? No, the idea is the only way you would ever get a hearing from the king, the only way you would ever be able to be in the presence of this great monarch king is if you have someone bringing you there. You've been introduced to this King. That's the picture. And if that has been the case, and remember all of this is surrounded by the righteousness of Christ that is ours through faith, based upon His life, based upon His death, based upon His his resurrection, based upon that, we have our introduction. And having been introduced through the work of Christ, we can now, isn't it great, stand in the presence of the King. We can now stand in grace, in the sphere of grace, and we don't need to cower. We don't need to flee. We don't need to, be, to have shame, even though we should be shameful if it weren't for Christ because of our sin. This is almost more than we can imagine in light of Romans 1, 2, and 3. This is absolutely amazing. If anything, what I would do, I can perhaps imagine standing before this righteous king and I am unrighteous, perhaps crawling on my hands and knees, I could beg for a merciful, speedy death. I deserve execution. You deserve execution. You deserve just punishment from this king. Please, perhaps, I could say, please, make it quick, make it, make it fast. And instead, we stand. There's there's confidence. There's sureness. There's stability. There is security. And we are standing in the presence of the King who we have rebelled against and offended every single day of our life. We stand in grace. We stand in grace. But make sure you know, we stand. And this isn't arrogance. This isn't how dare anyone think they could stand before the king in whom they have offended. This is not that at all. This is designed again to say, we stand. Based upon what do we stand? It says it right there in the text. This is meant to be Christ exalting, not Pat exalting. Through whom? That is through Christ we stand. We stand based upon the work of Christ. We have sureness. We have security. We have protection. Based upon what Christ has done. This is an arrogance. This is an opportunity for worship. This is an opportunity for us to say, Jesus Christ is absolutely fantastic. I appreciate even more so what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 when re- 1 when he refers to Jesus this way Christ Jesus. And then I'm going to read it literally, not as it's translated in the New American Standard. Christ Jesus, our hope. That's good. You know who Jesus is? Jesus is our hope. The only way you'd ever have any hope of standing before God, security before God, is because Christ Jesus is our hope. How good is that? How amazing is that? I thought we would do three points today. We'll do two. But let me then take a couple of minutes before we stop and end where we started. That, that difference between where our culture is, talking about hope, hope in hope, hopefulness, well-wishing, and this kind of hope. We haven't even seen the word hope yet, but it's going to come up in the next section. By now, I've been with family member after family member after family member after family member after family member and I'll stop counting there while they've been on their deathbed. And it's obvious, apart from a miracle, a literal miracle, that they're going to die and they're going to die quickly. They won't go back to their own home. And on every occasion, someone has said, and I don't mean a pastor, I don't mean a Christian, someone has meant well, no doubt, and said, just have hope. Or, or something like it. Keep your hopes up. Don't lose hope. And now as a Christian, while I appreciate the well-meaning nature of that and they're saying, have a good attitude perhaps, it has really bugged me. It has really bothered me. Because it's hope and what? Keep your hopes up. You're going to die. But you know what? Just encourage you when you hear someone say that to you. Because more than likely it's going to happen. Even if they're not a Christian and they don't know what they're talking about just let it be a reminder to you. You need to keep your hope. You need to have hope. Maybe not in the way they mean it, but that's okay. You know what? Just take that and have it be a reminder by God's common grace that you do need to have hope. And your hope is not hope in hope. And your hope is just keeping a positive mental outlook. Your hope is fixed. Your hope is really a sureness. Your hope is actually a sureness based upon the sure, historic, objective work of Christ. And you know what? Your hope can be all about the fact that you have peace with God. And you're not stepping into a Christless eternity where you're going to have to, 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 to fend for yourself, if you will. And so maybe I'm just lightening up. Or maybe it's just an opportunity to see an opportunity to even be reminded by a perhaps well-meaning unbeliever of something you know to be true. It's not like I hope you win the lottery. It's hope that is fixed, that is sure, that is absolute because of something Jesus has done. And because of that, we can face tomorrow, we can face eternity, we can face anything. And it's absolutely amazing. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Christ. Lord, what a tragedy it is when we lose sight of Him. And I would pray that we wouldn't. We know it's possible. I'm even reminded of what it says in Revelation where Christ tells a church that they've lost their first love. They were doing ministry, they were doing all sorts of things in the name of Christ, but they didn't actually see Christ as preeminent. Lord, may we see Christ as preeminent. May we know and realize that the reason we have any hope whatsoever is because of Christ and that it is a sure confidence in Him that we have. Lord, change us, change us as individuals, change us as a church to be more in love with Jesus Christ, more impressed with His greatness, His grace, His love, His power, and His righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.